If you have your Bibles, please open up to Isaiah. Uh, we're in chapters 63 and 64 uh, today. And, and as you're turning there, um, I, I want to thank you. Got, I got back, uh, I think that was just last week, I got back from my training, my time uh, down in Phoenix with Frontiers International. They're a uh, missions group. They're, they're focused on the Muslim world. Anyway, I came back. I had to grab something out of my office, and, and I came to uh, part of my wall is just covered in post-it notes with prayers from you uh, and, and encouraging words from you. And, and I can't tell you how much that meant to me. There were so many, like I, I was getting tired (laughs) as I read them, right? I don't mean I was tired of being encouraged, but it was like, this is a lot to take in. So thank you so much. I brought those home, shared them with with my wife. uh, And and it just reminded me, I mean, in, in, in times like this, where sometimes days are just hard, Man, the body of Christ, we need to encourage each other. We need to reach out. So, so your encouraging words challenged me this week to make sure that I'm doing that. And we just all need to do that. Like I, when you think of somebody this week, man, take the time. Send them a text or, or, or call them, pray for them. But we need to, to continue to encourage one another. Um, that has nothing to do with our sermon, just part of body life. Well, it's hard to believe that we are... Um, really almost done with the book of Isaiah. We wrap up next week. Um, and as we come to these, these last chapters, there are many similarities, um, but with some important differences in, in these last chapters and, and what we were in not that long ago in 56 through 59. In chapters 56 through 59, there was a major emphasis, I'm sure you picked up on it, in human inability to live up to God's righteous standard. And then there was a, a smaller emphasis um, on, what, uh, on God's power to make possible what he requires of us. And then we came to chapter 60 through 62 with the promise of God's triumph and his ability to bring about what he said he will do. Um, And now we return to the reality of God's expectations for his servants and, and really our inability to manifest his character to the world. Um, but fortunately, we'll see that the emphasis rests not on our, our ability or, or really our inability, but, but on God's ability. God has the power to make his servants holy people, like he said back in, in 62.12. So uh, look with me at, at uh, 63, and, and we see this really vivid imagery of this divine warrior who will not be defeated by by anyone or anything, including human sin. And the watchman calls out in verse one, asking who is this that he sees marching out of Edom? And Edom was uh, the perennial enemy of Judah and, and came to represent all the enemies of Judah. Edom here represents all of humanity. It represents our sin. It represents our rebellion. And and this man that's coming out from Edom, even from a distance, the watchman is is impressed by him. This, This man looks remarkable. He's got a swagger to him as he marches along. He can tell even from a distance that, that this guy has strength and power. He's, uh, he's dressed in, this, in this impressive, uh, these impressive garments. He's decked out in, in this apparel. And he asks, who is this? 
And at the end of verse one, the warrior speaks out. He says, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the servant. This is the Messiah. And it says he's speaking. And of course you think, well, yeah, you're speaking. How else would you communicate? But, but we think about how important God's speech is in in the word, what we see through God's word, that Yahweh has chosen to speak with mankind. He's chosen, praise God, to reveal himself by speaking to us. And we see this right in Genesis 1 and then all the way through Revelation 21 that God speaks. He reveals himself to his creation. He reveals his character, his will, his ways to us. And what he speaks is right. Isaiah several times has compared the the idols, these false gods, with Yahweh, the true God, the living God. And he's made it clear that the idols cannot do this. The idols cannot speak. right? They couldn't speak about the past. They couldn't speak about the present. They can't speak about the future. Only God can speak. And when he speaks, he speaks rightly. He speaks what is true. So we never need to worry if what he is saying is true. And I realized this week that I take that for granted, how great it is that when I come to God's word, I just know that this is truth. Um, I, I tend to be skeptical of, uh, of, of, of people. Um, I, when I buy a car, I don't know when the last time you bought a car was, but, but every time I've bought a car, I just don't know if I can trust this person that I'm talking to, right? Like I'm trying to evaluate, man, are they just, are they trying to pull the wool over my eyes? Like, is this thing really just a lemon? Like what is going on here? And, and we get further and further in the conversation, the, the transaction happens. And I'm like, I think that this guy or this gal is truthful. But in the back of my mind, I wonder, am I just being duped? We don't need to worry about that with God. We don't need to wonder if what he says is true, what he speaks is true. This is what he does, he speaks in righteousness. And then lastly, the warrior says that he is mighty to save. And this is what we're talking about today. He will save, and in order to save, he has to defeat his enemies. Judgment will bring about the salvation of these, these, uh, his people. And in these chapters today, we're reminded that Yahweh has saved. And that should give us confidence that he will save. Yahweh who saved in the past is the God who will save. In verse 2, the warrior's getting closer as he walks. And the watchman realizes that, that he sees something that, that he thought was different when he was, when he was further off. He notices that his garments weren't red to begin with, but they were stained. He says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press. And there's wine press imagery throughout scripture. Maybe you're familiar with that. Um, it, it pictures judgment and, it, and it's really a, a terrifying picture. It's, it's a horrific picture. Verse three, the warrior responds. He says, I've trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
I don't mean to be grotesque, but this is what it says, that God's servant, the Messiah here, is bringing judgment. He's killing his enemies. It's disgusting that, that blood is splattering like grapes in a wine press that are being stomped out. And it would be easy to look at this and ask, is something wrong with God? Is he just this rage-filled God? And we look, and it says that he does this in his anger. And, and we might be tempted to read this, to hear this, and assume that God has crossed a line. We might question, is God really just, or is he just bloodthirsty? God is not passionless. right? He is a father whose children have been abused and mutilated. How would we expect him to respond? He's the maker and his creatures have rebelled and tried to take his throne. They become the exact opposite of what they were supposed to be. Aristotle pictured God. He described God as, as this passionless, unmoved mover. And that's not the God of the Bible. Who, who his love reaches to the heavens, as the psalmist describes. And certainly his fury for justice burns hotter than we can imagine. And God's anger is directed at those who would destroy and oppress his people. And we cannot underestimate how passionate God is about blessing his people the way he intends. And that he will take care of anyone that will come against those plans. Verse 4, I think, helps us to see that God isn't going crazy Right, the, the day of vengeance in his heart, which means in his plans, is explained by the parallelism in the next line here. And my year of redemption has come. Matt did a great job of, of helping us see last week the, the difference even between day, day of vengeance and year. The, the, time is, is, uh, the, the time is different. The plans, he says, that were in his heart were to redeem his people. Right? Destroying the wicked is not the end goal. The end goal is delivering his people because there cannot be a Zion like we've read about where, where God will, will dwell with his people, where, where there will be no sin, there will be no pain, where no one will be wronged, where, where there will be peace that, that we can't even fathom. Right? None of that can exist until God takes care, care of sin and evil. Until that is accomplished, God's people will not be freed. So this imagery is gruesome. We don't see this when we open up a children's Bible, but it's something that we have to come face to face with, that God is the judge, that God will judge rightly. And we cannot forget that before the servant comes and treads in the wine press, that he did what? He poured out his own soul to death. He took on the wrath of God for all who would trust in him, for all who would believe. So the death we read about here in Isaiah they're those who did not trust in his death. But before we go any further, I think there's two responses, or at least that I can think of. The first is, if you haven't trusted in God, you need to take this imagery very seriously here. That you stand as God's enemy. And I just ask you, is that what you want? Do you want to be an enemy of God? Why wouldn't you want to be his child? Why would you not surrender your life to him and have life in him? The second is for those who have surrendered their lives to Christ. 
We have to know that the world has been blinded to the good news of the gospel. And in Isaiah, we see that that God's people were not proclaiming God to the world, the good news that we can be saved, that we can be made right, that we can be reconciled to our God. Right? The, the nation of Israel is not doing that. Are we doing that? I've been thinking a lot about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of our age. This is our mission. Right? This wasn't just for the, the, the original disciples. This is our mission to go and tell the world. So every aspect of our lives needs to be connected to the Great Commission. Right? Whatever you do in life, if, if you're a student, if you're, if you're in sales, if you're an accountant, if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're grandma, grandpa, you volunteer, whatever it is we do, we're, we're a Great Commission student. Right? We're, we're a Great Commission accountant. We're a Great Commission grandparent. And maybe, maybe you realize it's been forever since you've even tried to talk about how good God is with someone that does not know Jesus. I just encourage you, step one is just start praying. Just, just start praying about the people you know. Pray about the people that you work with, your neighbors. Pray about the people you, you meet that day. And when you're in conversations with people, start asking God, God, would you help me to talk about you right now? Jesus, I just want to tell this person about how good you are. God, I want to tell this person that, that salvation is real, that we can have real hope. So this is something I've just been trying to do more and more as I'm in everyday conversations. And a couple times in the last week, God's answered that prayer for me. One time, it wasn't so obvious. I just had to take this risk and, and, and try to talk about Jesus. And we got to talk a little bit. The other time, the other guy brought it up. Like I hadn't even done anything, just starts talking about what he believes in God. I'm like, okay, Lord, I get it. Here we go. And just praying for the words to share. But we've got to be praying for opportunities to talk about our Lord. Let's keep going. Verse 7, he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So for the Hebrew to recount, as it says in verse 7, or, or in verse 11, it'll say, remember. It's not just this mental exercise of, of somehow recalling something that, that you've seen before. No, someone who remembers what God has done lives out what God has said, what, what God has done. So if they weren't living in obedience, this would be one who is forgotten. The believer who remembers God's great goodness, his compassion, his faithful love to, to a faithless people. Right? When we remember this, we praise God because they recognize that God has given not what is deserved. Instead, he's poured out his grace and mercy. Verses 8 and 9 for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, right? He knows that they were liars. And he became their savior, it says. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. For whatever reason, God chooses his people. He says, you are my people. 
And the people respond by choosing him, saying he is our God. And then they live that out by, by loyalty to him in lives that reflect his character. Right? Surely, if they are God's people, then God's character should be in them. It should shine through them. But being God's elect and, and living holy lives, as you know by now, it, it does not mean that we will not face hardship, that we will not be afflicted. But it does mean that God is with them. He's with his people. He delivers them. He sees them through painful circumstances, difficulty, trials. They do not face hardship alone. He loves his people. He's by their side. He's the redeemer who carries them. But as you notice here, it doesn't just say that he's with them in their afflictions. No, he too is afflicted. It would be good enough for God to be present with us when we suffer, right? That would be enough to praise God for. But he's afflicted with them. And then verse 10 takes a turn. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. He himself fought against them, right? This is bad. Their sin was, was so, so bad. It, it was such a big deal that it grieved the Holy Spirit. It was so bad that God says, it says that God's become their enemy. Now, it's, it's because they turned, because they rebelled, but he is now their enemy. And as we'll see, uh, as we'll see later to the prophet, it seems like that's where God's people are once again. Verse 19 goes on to describe how bad it is. It says, we've become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name, right? None would be able to look at them and recognize that must be God's people. That must be the people that God has ruled over. No, they look like every other nation that has nothing to do with the glorious name of God. We're going to jump ahead here into chapter uh, 64, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll jump right back. So transition with me here. Verse 6 in chapter 64, continuing this, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities, right? They're unclean. They've chosen sin rather than faithfulness to God, and it's that sin that has made them unclean. Their best, their, their most righteous deeds, he says, are like polluted garments, which it means menstrual cloths, right? So he compares their righteous acts, right? The best of what they do, the best of their deeds are like a bloody minstrel rag. None of them call in the name of the Lord. And he says he's hidden their fa his face from them. They're melting away in their sin. It does not look good. Okay, let's get back to 63, uh, 11. And remember, um, they've rebelled, even though God's been faithful. It, it, their, their sin grieved the Holy Spirit. Now God's turned. He's their enemy. And we know from this early description in 63 of the warrior that being the enemy of God is terrifying. Then 63.11 says this, Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses, of his people, 
Where is he who put in the midst of them the Holy Spirit? This he who remembered Moses and the people. This is God remembering. And it doesn't mean that, that he forgot, but he recalled his people. And his people, this is key. There's a relationship here. These are not strangers. These are the ones that God has chosen. This is the people that he elected for himself. So he remembers Moses. He remembers his elect people. He saved them from the sea. He did this by his strength. Verse 12 says, by his glorious arm, he split the waters before them. Verse 13, he led them to green pastures. He gave them rest. And in doing this, the end of verse 14 tells us that his name was glorified. And it is so good that God is glorified by saving us. God glorifies himself when he saves people who do not deserve it, which is anyone he saves. He shows his greatness by saving us from sin and death. And what's great news is God is determined to be glorified. He, he will be glorified. Now, if I said I'm determined to glorify myself, you should look at me sideways. You should think, man, you're egotistical, Greg. I had no idea. But if God is determined to be glorified, this is good and, and this is right because he is truly worthy of glory. It's right that he should be glorified, that he wants to be glorified. He has the power to glorify himself. And therefore, we can be sure that he will glorify himself. And he gets so much glory by saving sinful people who are anything but faithful. He shows himself to be faithful to the faithless. He shows himself to be powerful by defeating sin. And it's staggering for me to think about how he defeats sin, which we'll get to more of that later. Verse 15, through the end of chapter uh, 64, are, are this, this prayer, this poem uh, that we see by the prophet. Um, I won't get into lots of detail to, here, but, but it's, it's shaped in, in, a, in a chiasm. I, I think we have a slide that gives a real simple thing. So uh, uh, you'll see like at the beginning and the end, there are these parallel thoughts, right? And then the next, there's parallel thoughts. So a chiasm goes A, B, C, B, A, right? So C in the middle isn't, um, there's no parallel to it. And so often that's, that's the focus. And, and we, see, we see that here. We see the middle in verse 5. He says, you meet him who, uh, who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our, sins have, uh, in our sins we have been a long time. And here's the question that it asks. And shall we be saved? So right in the middle of this prayer of this poem, the great, the great question, shall we be saved? Or, or how shall we be saved? Because God is justified in his anger. And clearly, God's people are incapable of saving themselves. No one can save themselves from sin. As depicted by the warrior that we first read about, God will deal with sin. Sin will be paid for. So this question of verse 5, will, will God save? Shall we be saved? Well, let's jump into verse 1 of 64. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So Isaiah is making an appeal on behalf of the people to God. And my guess is that every one of us, at some point, we've made an appeal to God. 
right, over something. There's been some point, probably multiple points in our lives where, where we make this plea with God. And I wonder, what is your appeal to God based on? My guess is that most of us, maybe all of us, make that appeal based on ourselves, right? We were thinking like, what, what could I trade to God to, to get him to intervene here? What could I do for God so that he would, would bless me? Like, is there a way that I could just devote myself to God so that he would come through just this one time for me? Is your appeal to God based on what you've done or, or what you could do for his kingdom? Because Isaiah knows that there's zero value in that appeal. His appeal to God is founded on who God is. And it's proven by past history of his own people. We have a book full of, of the history of God's steadfast love for his people. And we've seen Isaiah appeal to God for how, how God has hacked, acted in the past to his people. And certainly God doesn't need to be reminded. Um, I need to be reminded of how I've acted in the past. My kids do this all the time. They, uh, they remind me of decisions I've made uh, for other siblings in the past, uh, precedents that I have set before, right? They'll mention, well, back in whatever year, when Hudson did this thing, you decided this, and that's what I need right now. Right? They're so good at reminding me how I've acted in the past because I'm so good at forgetting and mixing up details. But they make an appeal based on how I've been before with another sibling or maybe with them. Well, God does not need to be reminded. He doesn't mix up the details of how he has acted in history before. But Isaiah reminds God that he saved his people. And this is the foundation for his plea to be who he is, right? He knows that God is unchanging. He's, he's pleading with him, be who you are and save again. Verse three recalls awesome things. It says, when you did awesome things that we didn't look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. There's an appeal throughout this prayer and this poem for his glory, for his name to be made great in all the earth like we just talked about. And then here's another foundation for this appeal in verses eight and nine. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So this foundation for the appeal here is the relationship that God has with his people, that God is their father, right? That they are his own adopted children. I've probably shared this before, but one of the, the questions that I had, one of the things I was most nervous, nervous about with adopting uh, our youngest, Madison, um, was I, I just wondered, would she or how long would it take for her to feel like she was my daughter? And how long would it take for her to feel like, like I was her dad and Lindsay was her mom and, and that her siblings were, were, were hers. Like I knew legally she would be my daughter, but would that connection be there on my end, on her end? 
And I'd read and I talked to other adoptive parents and, and I'd heard stories about how long that could take, sometimes months, sometimes years. I'd read stories of adoptive parents that never felt that way, of adopted children that never felt that way. And I was nervous. I didn't know how I was going to function as a dad to this adopted girl if I didn't feel like, like I do with my biological kids. And, and much to our delight, Maddie felt like ours right away. I mean, truly, the, the first time I held her, just, I just felt this overwhelming love for this little girl who is now my daughter. And, and even though on her end, we didn't feel like her parents yet. She didn't even know what parents were. But that came over time. And now today, Maddie, she has all the rights of a Goose Tree kid. Um, my last name's Goose Tree, if you're new. Sorry, <laughs> probably sounded really weird. What's a Goose Tree kid? Um, she has all the rights of being one of the goose trees so she can make an appeal to my mind, to my heart as my daughter because I love her. Isaiah says to the Lord, you are our father. We're the clay, you're the potter. We're the work of your hands. Do what you want with us. We are your people. We rightly expect that God, who has this fatherly relationship with his people, that he will treat them as his own children because he loves them. Exodus 34, God reveals himself to, to Moses. This is, this is a key passage. Like if, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, you need Exodus 34 um, in there. Or it's in there, I mean highlighted. Um, <laughs> you definitely need it in there. Get a new Bible. All right, Exodus 34, 6. Man, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is faithful. He is God of compassion, of steadfast love. He is slow to anger. And again, back in 63, the prophet recounts the steadfast love of the Lord, saving people who were liars. But in his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He bore them. He carried them. In the desert, they rebelled like we read. God became their enemy. But, but what do we read in, in 63, 11? He remembered. He remembered Moses. He remembered his people that he had chosen. He saved them. This is what God does. Yes, he will deal with sin. You do not want to meet Jesus as your judge. That, the picture of the warrior treading in the wine press. Right? Sin will be dealt with. You want to meet Jesus as your savior. You, you need to trust in him, in his shed blood. So yes, he will deal with sin, but do not underestimate his desire to save. His intention is to show mercies to rebels who will turn to him. The Puritans, I just learned this this week. I never heard this before, but they had a really interesting way of speaking of God's judgment and of God's salvation. They described his judgment as his alien work and his salvation as his proper work. Right? That yes, God judges. Yes, he will deal with sin, but, but it's, it, it's, it's almost as if it's alien to him. And, and what is natural to him is saving. 
right? He, he loves to save. It's natural for him to forgive. We come to the end of 64, verses 11 and 12, and, and there's this question, God, will you restrain? Will you keep silent? Or, or will you save? Like verse 5 asked. Verse 11, it says, Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Right? I don't think we can understand what a big deal the temple was to God's people. Right? The, the hope that they had because this is where God dwelt the, the, the pride that they had in it. They were the nation that, that, that had God's temple, but here it lies in ruins. They can't even point to that. Verse 12, it says, will you restrain yourselves or yourself at these things? O Lord, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Right back in 63, 15, the prophet begs God, look down from heaven, from your heavenly temple. Come down, save your people. He asks him, why are you holding back? Why are you holding back your compassion from us? Come and save your people. We desperately need you. And Isaiah, as he's made clear in this, in this poem, in this prayer, people don't have a leg to stand on. Right? They, they cannot argue that, that God should save them because of their obedience. They're terrible at obedience. They, they can't argue that he should save them because they've loved him so well. No, they've been horrible at loving God. They can't even point to their temple as a reason to come. It's, it's in ruins. Their hope isn't in anything that they have or anything that they have done. Their whole foundation for their appeal is who God is, that, that he is the God who has saved an unfaithful people, that he is their father, that his name will be glorified when he saves people that do not deserve it. So, so this question 12, will you restrain yourself at these things? Will you keep silent? Will you hold back forever from your people? And the answer is no. God will not withhold forever. God will save his people that he loves. God would return to his people to save them. In Jesus God comes down to save the people that he loves. Right? People, we, we cannot save ourselves. We, we, have, we have no argument to God, no, no foundation for an appeal based on our, our merits, our abilities, or anything that we have. So, so will God do as he's done before? Will he have pity on his children whom he has chosen? Will he bring glory to his name? Will the warrior that we saw in the beginning of 63 act to make it possible that chapter 60 through 62 are fulfilled? Paul was meditating on Christ in 1 Corinthians 2, and he quotes in verse 9, um, of 1 Corinthians 2 from Isaiah 64, he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We, we could not have imagined what Jesus would do for us. We wouldn't have guessed that the Christ would come and live for us the righteous life that we're supposed to live but could not live, and then die the death that all of us deserved to die, that Jesus would become unclean for us, to cleanse us, that on the cross the Father would hide his face from his Son so that his face wouldn't have to be hidden from us like we've read today, 
that Jesus would, would melt in our sins, that on the third day he would rise from the dead, that he would appear to his disciples, that he would prepare them to tell the world the good news, that the God who saved in the past has come in the flesh to save, that all who would trust in the death and resurrection of the Son would be saved. So the question of verse 5, will he save? The answer is a resounding yes. Let's pray. God, I, I do thank you for what Isaiah does here, that he helps me see that I can trust you, the God who has saved. And I've got stories over and over again in Scripture of what you have done. Lord, and we have what Isaiah did not see yet. Lord, we have the story, the truth that Jesus, you came, you lived, you died, you defeated death, rising on the third day, and you offer life to all who would trust in you, all who would put their faith in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who's trying to figure out if, if they can trust you, if they can follow you. Lord, would you work in their hearts? God, would you bring about new life? Would you bring about a trust, a faith in you, Jesus? And, and Lord, would you help us to be a people who, who do not fail at talking about you, Lord, that, that we would, would trust in you even to give us the courage to speak about you, to, to share the good news that the God who saved is the God who will save. Jesus, we love you, Lord. God, would you help us to be your, your obedient, faithful children. God, we cannot even do that on our own, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.